So toxins are, there's two ways we get toxins in our body. Your body makes toxins and then you um, get exposed to them. So anytime you, you eat a piece of food and you metabolize it, there's breakdown products, you know, as your cells are metabolizing it and, and making heat and energy, they also make waste products. So that's what turns into urine, sweat. If you ever had like a really foul odor in your breath, a lot of that can be like nitrogen gases from your bowels. Hi everyone, welcome to the Good Health Cafe. The place to learn about how to navigate the healthcare system and understand health in plain language. I'm your host, Nikita Boston Fisher, a health educator with a passion for meeting people where they are. Today's guest is Dr. Aaron Hartman. He's a board certified physician in family medicine and integrative and holistic medicine. Grab your warm drink and let's get to the episode. Good morning, Dr. Hartman. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe. Thank you so much for coming. Nikita, it's great to be here. Thanks a lot for inviting me. Thank you. Could you please introduce yourself to the audience? My name is Aaron Hartman. I'm a medical doctor. I'm a clinical researcher, and I started a functional medicine practice in Richmond, Virginia several years ago. So I've got a couple of hats where also I'm an assistant clinical professor of um, medicine at the local university, and I'm the dad of three young kids who my wife and I all adopted. And that's kind of one of the things that got us down this whole functional medicine journey starting over 10 years ago. Wonderful. Could you please tell us what functional medicine is? So functional medicine is basically root cause medicine. So instead of trying to find out like the symptoms of diabetes, like high sugars and headaches or the symptoms of heart disease, you try to get to find out like, why do you have a certain thing? Is it chemical diabetes from environmental chemicals? Is it purely dietary? Some people don't realize that low vitamin D status and um, mineral deficiencies like magnesium, potassium, chromium can actually increase the risk for diabetes. So what we do in functional medicine is try to get to the root cause of what's going on, which a lot of times means going back to people's past, childhood, even life traumas. It's interesting how psychologically traumatizing events in childhood can set you up for brain-based inflammation in adulthood, which is a whole new field of study in the world of neuropsychiatry and neuroendocrinology. So it's trying to just trying to get the root cause of what's going on using all the up-to-date science. And then that's based around the patient, around their personal history. That sounds really interesting. I wonder if you go to people's houses, do a site visit, see if there's something environmental in their home or anything as you try to answer that question. Environmental, it's really interesting. So you bring that up, you know, um, about 23% of the population of the United States have a gene that increases the risk to environmental mold toxicity. And half the buildings in the country have um, water damage. So all of a sudden you have this one of many, many things in the environment that can cause illness. You know, people don't realize that the city municipalities, 20% of city municipalities have arsenic in their tap water. And so a lot of what I do is environmental medicine, is having people get their houses checked out, is asking people about their houses. You know, people don't realize that the humidity in your home in the summertime can increase the growth of bacteria in your furniture or in your house. So we do do a lot of environmental medicine, which is a lot of just, you know, finding the root cause of people's illnesses. Does that mean that an appointment with a functional medicine doctor is longer than a traditional like family medicine or other type of appointment? Intake is about two hours to kind of learn most of your history. And the thing about it is that that's the starting point. The follow-up is like 45 minutes to an hour. But the reality is sometimes I don't figure things out till, you know, six months in, you know, it's interesting. Mm -hmm. You you think two hours is a lot of time and, you know, a 90 minute follow-up, 45 minute follow-up is a plenty of time, but Really, when you look at how long you've been alive, you know, you, you're still just hitting the high points, right? And so I've had patients who it's taken me, you know, a long time to figure out that, you know, um, trauma was a part of their history or they say, oh, I've never had mold, never had mold. And 
And one day, like, oh, yeah, you know, I was in my bathroom and this part of the floor fell through. And lo and behold, <laughs> and it's like, I mean, that happens all the time. It's amazing, you know, how often something like that, as ridiculous sounding as that is, actually does happen. Because yeah, I bet there's a lot that we take for granted in our history. Because <laughs> we're like, that's just the way things are, you know? I mean, well, it's funny. Talking to my dad growing up, you know, um, they used DDT as a bug spray. You'd go to the local local you know whatever shop you know and get ddt and just use that around the house and he grew up on a farm um in west virginia and everybody knew you had arsenic and chicken feed but you had to stop putting in the last week before the chickens were processed that was just mm-hmm. so he grew up feeding chickens feed full of arsenic that was and that was the normal no one mm-hmm. thought twice about it because it was it was safe right right <laughs> so it's really you know my some one of my questions i might ask myself now is what are we doing now that is safe but when right. 10 years from now, 20 years from now, we're going to be like, can you believe we used to, you know, like the whole like low fat thing right now, I think is like the, the current thing we're trying to work through where we've learned fats are important for kids' brain development. We've learned fats are important for weight loss. We've learned healthy fats are important for actually heart and neurological development. And so we're still, we still let's have low fat stuck in our brain when actually it's one of the many things that are making us sick. And yeah. so, you know, it's not just smoking. It took us half a century to figure out it's bad for us. There's a lot of things we still think are okay. That really are bad for our health. Yeah, I know that's frustrating to a lot of people because they feel like they're doing the right thing based on messaging that they get. Yeah. But then it turns out that you're not. And then you're like, well, what am I supposed to be doing, really? Who knows what's going on? <laughs> yeah. Well, I still remember um, when I was doing my training back in, it was 2000. And there was this journal of the postgraduate medicine. And there was a chart on it. This is 2000. This is 22 years ago. And I was mm-hmm. looking at Splenda exposure and your risk for diabetes. And it's a nice little line with however much Splenda, which sucralose, which is actually a sugar molecule that has two chloride, chloride side chains attached to it. So it actually, when you attach chlorine molecules to um, um, organic sugars, it turns them into neurotoxins. And so it was this article talking about that, that this particular sweetener actually over time increases your risk for diabetes. Okay, huh. it's, it's still commonly used, it's still out there two decades later, people don't bat an eye about it. And we've known for over two decades that use of that you know, zero calorie sweetener can increase your risk for diabetes. And so it's part of what I'm learning is I'm unlearning some of the bad information I've learned, you know, also in my training. So that's part of what we try to do. Very interesting. Could you tell us, please, how the adoption of your children got you into functional medicine? Yeah, so my wife is a, is a pediatric occupational therapist and her, her specialty was kids with special needs. And Anna was one of her patients. And when her foster home was closing down, Becky asked me if we wanted to bring her into our house. You know, this little girl's losing a home. So we're like, sure, I'll sure, why not? You know, and over the period of the year, I fell in love with her. We ended up deciding to adopt her. And so that was the whole process, trying to adopt a kid with special needs. And you figured it'd be an easy process, but we actually had to fight to let the state allow us to adopt her. It was the most bizarre thing. And the first challenges we had was her GI specialist was convinced she needed to gain weight. And it's pretty common knowledge, kids with CP are low for birth weight, low for weight. They don't grow that well just because of a lot of the neurological issues. And sorry, just tell us what CP is. <laughs> oh, oh, sorry. CP, I'm sorry. Cerebral <laughs> palsy. Cerebral palsy is a, is a neurological condition in kids where they have loss of oxygen to the brain sometime before birth. And so it can look a, a lot differently, but a lot of kids, they have a lot of motor issues. They can't walk. And we were told Anna would never be able to walk or talk or, you know, she was going to be basically a vegetable. And so we just didn't accept that. We didn't think we didn't accept that as truth because we felt like there was something there. And so when the, the GI doctor was like, Hey, you should put a plastic tube into the stomach of this little girl. So you can, so you can pour sugar formula water 
down the tube and make her gain weight. It just didn't seem right. You know, you know, having a tube in, in a belly for a kid it affects, you know, speech development. You know, chewing and swallowing are part of developing speech in kids. It affects their ability to crawl. You can't really learn to crawl. I know you're not supposed to crawl, but it's hard to learn to crawl if you've got a tube coming out of your belly. So we just kind of opted out of that. And uh, six months later, my wife actually found a, a pediatric growth chart with kids with cerebral palsy. And Anna was right in the middle. And that was like my first aha moment that, wait a second, maybe the experts don't really know mm-hmm. like all there is about whatever they're supposed to be an expert in. And so, and over the last, and we just kept on having the exact same thing happening over and over and over again with different specialists. So every time it happened, I just trust the experts a little less and, and had to basically figure out how to find the answers for myself. And so we just kind of took us down alternative medicine, you know, doing, you know, making homemade mm-hmm. formula, nutritional medicine, genetic medicine, using, you know, doing gene testing to find out what genes she has and then giving her nutrients based on her genes, uh, lipid medicine, just a whole host of things. Uh, we've um, traveled around the country, around the world to find different therapies for her. We've gone to Canada to do this PONS therapy, which is used for uh, actually kids with cerebral palsy in, in Russia use this. And like, mm-hmm. why can't I do it here? Right. So we kind of had to go to Canada to get that. And so she's on um, 15 now. She's walking with forearm crutches. She talks. She loves playing chess. She's um, actually thriving and it's after, you know, over a decade of just lots of hard work and just not giving up on her. And so that's kind of what led me down this path, this alternative functional medicine pathway of just going out off the beaten path. And it's uh, changed my entire family and it's changed my career. That's a really wonderful story. I'm glad to hear that she's thriving now. I'm curious. So you were saying you discovered that the experts might not know all that there is to know. And you are an expert that was trained exactly the same way <laughs> as well, a medical really, doctor. <laughs> it's really funny. You know, it's so, you know, in the, in the Phaedo, which is, um, it's a, the book about, I think it's about Socrates being, you know, before the, the, um, the, the elders in Athens and he's, he's accused of corrupting the youth. Right. And, and so eventually he has to commit suicide. If you remember the story, what happened to him. But the thing about it is that his, his thing was, I don't know. And I know that I don't know. Therefore, uh-huh. I'm the only wise one among us. You claim to know and don't know. And that's kind of like the more I've learned, the more I realize I'm after years and years and years of studying multiple board certifications, I'm still learning. I'm still practicing. I think uh-huh. that people who really do take a deep dives and do become as expert as you can in a field, you really create a certain amount of humility to realize there's so much. There's no way you can know it all. And the more you know, the more you realize, like, actually, you, have to, you also learn to listen to patients. People actually know their bodies better than I ever will. People know their histories. And, you know, a lot of what I do is not telling you what to do. It's helping get the story. You tell me what's going on. And I help you interpret your story and say, hey, based on what I know, these are things that actually might help your body self-heal or self-regulate. Because that's what that's one of these, that's one of these principles in, in naturopathic medicine or in functional medicine is that your body, if you take away the things your body doesn't need and give it the things it's lacking, it, it tends to want to self-heal. And so that's amazing how many times, you know, with, with things like diabetes or blood pressure or high cholesterol, even like daughter's neurological issues, it's just like finding what you're lacking and giving your body what it needs. It actually, your body actually wants to heal. That's really interesting. So then do you not, so does that mean in functional medicine, you don't actually prescribe drugs like metformin or something? For it, it does, no, no. So as a medical doctor, I have my tool, I have many different toolboxes, right? Yeah. And so it totally depends on where you're at and how we're trying to treat your diabetes. If you come in and your A1C is, you know, say seven, for example, and your fasting sugars are running 
17200, then you probably you probably do need a medicine to start because your cells are so stunted by the high sugars, the metabolism is not working. So one of the things mm-hmm. about knowing cell biology is you got to get the sugars down enough to give the cells a rest so they can actually start working better. So we will definitely use medicines in certain situations. I mean, if you come in and you've got pneumonia, guess what? I'm giving you an antibiotic. You know what? I think one of the things we we, con- we confuse or conflate is, you know, the strength of our current healthcare system is acute healthcare. If you have an acute heart attack, acute stroke, acute appendicitis, something acute like that, you're the best place in the world to be, right? If you have anything chronic, which is 90% of everything these days, then we're not really good at that chronic healthcare stuff. And so one of the things as a medical doctor, I'm, I'm taking my medical training, my functional training, my holistic integrative training, my nutritional training, my environmental medicine training, all of these, and I'm always intermingling them with patients as I learn their story. So it's not just, I only do medications. I only do surgery. I only do herbs. I only do supplements. It's like, I do whatever the person in front of me, whatever their body needs. That's what I do. That's really awesome. What would you say was the single biggest intervention that changed the trajectory of your daughter's illness? The single biggest thing, to be honest, it was diet. It wasn't anything fancy. It wasn't, I mean, we've done t- all kinds of stuff. I'm doing this really cool tasis therapy with her right now. That's actually, from, we're doing it in, through Cal, um, Canada, whereas our muscles are contracting, we actually click a button to act to activate them with a stimulation device. So we're doing all kinds of cool things, but diet is what really, really, with all of our kids, with my son's asthma and eczema, what made that get better. You know, my, our two girls both have cerebral palsy and just to see my one daughter's facial features change over the years with her diet, it's been pretty amazing to see. It's interesting how food is medicine. It's either, either it's the best medicine or the slowest poison. And so we inadvertently kind of stumbled across that concept early on. And uh, it's been the single biggest thing we've done. And you can't, if your diet is terrible, if you're eating processed foods and processed oils and foods that are fake, that are boxed, that are, that are, um, are nutrient deficient, you can, there's really no drug that's going to make your numbers better or supplement that can overpower the fact that you're putting poor quality food into your system. That's a great follow-on because I know that you said that, you know, food is misinformation for your body. So don't misinform it. Are there certain foods, I guess, you think that we should all be eating? What do you mean when you make that statement? Well, okay. So when I say food is information, well, this is where the science is really, really interesting. So when you take a, a living plant, a green, you know, some kale or chard or something in your backyard, there's actually these things called micro, micro RNA. So they're basically little small pieces of RNA that that are actually part of the plant chemistry that are little bits of information. And these bits of information, when you eat it, actually give information to the bacteria in your GI tract. Some, where some of the newer science is going is that the bacteria in your gut, called the microbiome, act like an organ. They actually make neurotransmitters. Half of all serotonin, which is your happy neurotransmitters, made in your gut. I'm sorry, 90% of serotonin and 50% of, of dopamine is actually made in your GI tract. And so what happens is all of a sudden the the plant, these, these micro RNA come information for the bacteria in your, in your GI tract. And so it starts cramming their metabolism, their metabolism. And then they make, you know, um, short chain fatty acids and different metabolites that your body needs. So it's really kind of this whole inter- intricate interconnection. You know, one, one example I think about is when you, if you were, you know, say your mom who's breastfeeding, you go in the backyard and you pick up like a, some salad or a potato or a tomato out of your garden and you, you go inside and eat it. The bacteria that was in the soil coats that plant. And then when you eat it, what eventually happens is small amounts of that are excreted out of the breast milk 
for the for the baby. That's how interconnected you know food is with your health, but even with the health of your offspring as you breastfeed. And so when we say, I say food is information, yeah, I mean food is information for your genes, for your body, for your metabolism, for the bacteria in your body. And eating real living food is providing fresh raw information for this, the, all these complex interactions within our bodies. And it's interesting how the, your body's needs change based on the seasons, based on where you live in the world. Your body's needs here in Virginia are going to be different than your body's needs in Central and South America or in Alaska. And so the food that's being grown in these local areas has different amounts of plant-based, of soil-based DNA, RNA, there's microRNA, actually plants that are grown outside and get stressed more, you know, they get a deeper color. That's more phytochemicals. And these phytochemicals also are, are for a food for the bacteria in your gut, as well as natural anti-inflammatories. And so there's so much, we're learning about how complex food is. The more and more I learn, the more I learn is food is way more complex than we could possibly imagine. So eating real unadulterated food becomes a key, a key part of your health for that exact same reason. What's real unadulterated food? Great question. So unprocessed, real food, you know, it's, cl- it's close to getting it as close to nature as you can. Ideally local, ideally freshly picked. You know, I know that's not possible for everybody, but I, it gives you a spectrum. And the, the far end of the spectrum would be something boxed or canned, you know, years ago that's on a shelf in a, in a grocery store for years. You know, that's on the opposite spectrum of real unadulterated food. Can it be... Does it have to be plants only? Can it be fishes and meats and things? Yes, you want, yes. You want, you know, ideally you'd have a plant um, forward diet, which means it's mostly plant, plant-based, plant but you definitely need, you know, your omega-3s, you know, for example, humans can't really convert um, the omega-3s, ALA from seeds and nuts very well and EPA and DHA. So you actually do need like some kind of, you know, fish or something like that source of omega-3s, you know, protein, you know, to get enough protein as humans, it's hard to do that without eating some kind of like fish or fowl or some, 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 something concentrates the protein for you. Trace minerals, you know, a lot of trace minerals you get like bone broths and things like that. You know, you think about a cow, how's a cow get enough calcium and magnesium? It eats 18 hours a day. Well, you can't do that. So you, you need, you need to eat something or get some nutrition from somewhere for something that's already concentrated that for you. And that's where a lot of like um, bone broth. One of the, one of the wisdoms in bone broth is it's really rich in a lot of trace minerals. Oh, wonderful. The toxins in our body, how do they get there? How do we expel them? So toxins are, there's two ways we get toxins in our body. Your body makes toxins and then you um, get exposed to them. So anytime you, you eat a piece of food and you metabolize it, there's breakdown products, you know, as your cells are metabolizing it and, and making heat and energy, they also make waste products. So that's what turns into urine, sweat. You ever had like a really foul odor in your breath? A lot of that can be like nitrogen gases from your bowels. And so your body's making these, um, these toxins. So focusing on your body's ability to detoxify is important. So making sure you get plenty of water. One of the reasons why drinking lots of water is important. It helps maintain bowel consistency, but also helps flush out your kidneys. Sweating is a great way of detoxifying. It's amazing how little people sweat these days. And there's certain solvents that are preferentially sweat out of your body. You know, breathing, it's interesting, you know, taking a deep breath improves your lungs capacity, not only to get oxygen, but also to expel different VOCs. Your body actually makes volatile organic compounds. You know, we talk about CO2, but the compounds your body makes that you need to breathe out. So, so that's part of like your body's natural detoxifying 
process. And then there's like, when we get exposed to stuff, we get exposed to toxins in the air because the air is not 100% clean or, or we can't eat 100% organic. So we get exposed to different pesticides in the food or, you know, food gets wrapped in plastic or, or just even driving your car. When you get in your car, you and it's really hot in the summertime, that smell, that's basically um, vaporized plastics that you're inhaling. And so your body, when you get exposed to that stuff, your body needs to get it out of your system. That's where eating nutrient dense food you know, things that are rich, you know, curcumin, um, dandelion, extract, artichoke, um, different minerals, vitamins, fat soluble vitamins, all these things help your body to detoxify and improve its natural ability to detoxify. So the things you're exposed to, in addition to things your body makes, you can actually get out of your system. I think that car example, that's one of those things, again, that you just take for granted. This is just how a hot car smells. I had no idea where that scent was coming well, from. Well, I would, you know, so when, when I started getting this medicine, I started doing my own, t- testing my own heavy metals, testing my own chemical levels, my nutritional levels, right? And one of the things I kept on seeing consistently was I had really, really high levels of styrene in my urine. And styrene is, is a, is a um, if you ever take, you know, a plastic and burn it, that burning plastic smell, that's styrene incredibly toxic. It's like so, so, so bad for you. And I just couldn't figure out where, I mean, I'm not burning plastic or trash in my backyard. Like where was I getting exposed to this? And so I realized that I was always doing my testing in the middle of summertime when the cars are hottest. And so when I started testing in the wintertime away from the summertime, my starting levels just came down. And it was really interesting to see like how the correlation with, yeah, I do get in a big plastic box and drive to work, you know, and back every day, twice a day for 40 minutes a day. And so it's just real. So now every time I get my car, I just kind of roll the windows down to kind of get fresh air in first to kind of flush out the stuff that's built up all the cars from sitting. But it's amazing how our body, you were surrounded with plastic is a petroleum byproduct, right? You know, petroleum Mm -hmm. is not something you want to be putting on your body or inhaling or exposing yourself to a lot of petroleum byproducts, but it's, it's everywhere in the environment these days. It is. Dr. Hartman, what do you tell patients? So like something I've observed, at least from other guests on the Good Health Cafe, when I have patients on, is that navigating the healthcare system is really complex, really challenging. Sometimes you've really got to push and advocate for yourself to try to get to the bottom of something. What do you normally recommend to people on how they can advocate for themselves when trying to navigate a complex system like this? You know, it's really interesting. Things are complex, but getting to health isn't. It's just learning you have to learn, like, just like you have to learn how to cook. It's amazing how many people have no idea how to cook these days. You know, we don't have a microwave in our house and people are like, how do you, how do you cooking things without a microwave? It's like, I mean. On a stove? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. We have to, re, we have to, we're at the stage now, we have to relearn so many basic things about how to cook, how to prep food. How do you cook a, how do you cook cauliflower? How do you cook broccoli? How do you cook these things so that they're really super amazing and yummy? You know, so I think probably just becoming educated or re-educated about basic, basic food science, you know, basic home ec kind of stuff. How do you actually prepare a meal? How do you store a meal? You just have to become educated and, you're, and you, people don't realize like water quality. There's, there's a great re, uh, resource called the environmental working group. It's ewg.org. And they have a whole resource on female skincare line products that have different chemicals in them. They actually have a water, water tap database that allows you to plug in your zip code in the country It'll tell you what's what chemicals are actually found in the city and municipality, and then kind of walk you through how to get clean water. And so I, I hear that messenger saying. And so one of the things I've done on my website is basically set up like a blog on detoxification, on inflammation, 
on, on clean food. I have a bunch of food plans that are actually detox food plans, elimination of food plans. It's just getting educated. So I've got a whole bo- uh, book reading list there that I expound every year. I'll read a bunch of books. And then based on what I feel like are would be useful for patients, I'll do like little synopsis. So I've been creating over the last couple of years, a resource for people to become self-educated because you really have to take charge of your health. But this is not the kind of medicine where you go to your doctor in a 10 minute visit, they really quickly write a script for clean air and you go home and get clean air, right? That's not how it really, you know, how it works. You have to like learn a little bit of building science, learn a little bit about, you know, carpet. People don't realize that carpets house a ton of chemicals, formaldehyde, you know, is off gas from carpets, you know, and it's just, it's just learning. And then as you're able to implement things, implement, just start, start eating real food, working on your environment, you know, getting a decent HEPA filter for your sleeping space. It's a process, you know, and it took me and my family about a year and a half just to learn how to source our own food. So what I tell people is if it took me that long to figure that out, it's going to take, take you a little bit of time as well. But that's the reason why I put together all these educational resources on my website is to help um, accelerate people's learning, learning curve. Wow, that's really useful. When I think, though, about navigation, it sounds like you're saying, okay, one, one aspect is you need to get yourself educated. But what about when you're actually maybe in the hospital or sitting in front of a doctor? How do you do it there? That's, you, you don't. The way to get educated is the best place to do that is not to do it in a pinch situation where you're needing emergent care. If you're in a hospital, you basically need, if you're in a hospital for an acute issue, you need that acute issue addressed, you know? And so, yes, you should still advocate for yourself, but that's when you're almost to a certain degree at the, um, the will of the system, so to speak, because if you got this really bad stomach pain and it's your appendix, you can't go home, think about it, research and decide, do you want to do, do, do antibiotics, IV antibiotics, or do you want to go ahead and surgically remove it? Because there's the literature says you actually might get by with just doing some IV antibiotics, for example, you know, and maybe you want to make sure you've already got your team together. You've got your primary doctor as someone you can trust already on your side, you know, because if you wait till you're in a pinch, then you're really going to, you're going to be making decisions without your, 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 your team around you or your, or your group around you. So that's where you're just getting a really good provider, someone who'll listen to you, but also someone who's inquisitive. You know, I, I learn from my patients, you know, routinely patients will ask me questions about stuff that I don't know the answer to or bring me articles and I'll be like, that's interesting. And I'll learn. So I kind of use my patients also as a resource for me to learn, it allows me then to take that and help other people as well. But I think, you know, thinking about before you're in a pinch, is probably the, is the best place to start. If you wait till in a pinch, then you're kind of almost at the will of the system. And then whoever family, friends are around you, that can help advocate for you. Yeah. That's great. Thank you. Do you think there are any myths or misconceptions when it comes to functional medicine or taking care of our health in general that you'd like to dispel? I, mean, I think when people think about functional medicine, they think, they think it's a little hooey, hooey or a little, little kind of off base. They don't realize it's actually the most scientific, up-to-date kind of medicine, you know. That one of the top functional GI doctors in the country is Dr. Fasciano off at Harvard and Dr. Molina, Dr. Ed Hopkins, you know, one of the top cardiovascular health experts who started the first metabolic cardiology program is Dr. Houston at Vanderbilt. You know, people don't realize this is actually kind of cutting edge stuff. It's just, it's, it's stuck in these little, these little, these little crevices, these little areas. And so what a lot of uh, functional practitioners like me do is take that information and, and combine it into one place. So that when we see people, we can, we can apply it to them. So I think that's one big misconception. The other misconception, it's not, it's not um, accessible. 
you know, I think we're so used to it in, in, a, in a customer service kind of type environment and culture where it's a product I want, I pay for it, I get it, and I move on. And we've kind of commoditized healthcare as well. And, and this kind of medicine is not something you go in, you show up, you consume and move on. You actually have to, you have to intake it, you have to imbibe it. You have to like take your health seriously. You have to take it just as seriously as you take any other endeavor, profession, anything like that. It has to be, you know, part of who you are is maintaining your health and, and wellness. And that's, that's something that has been for, for at least since I was growing up as a kid was not something no one ever thought about actively maintaining your health and wellness. So it was something just naturally happened. And we're kind of learning it's not something you have to be act- actively engaged in. So that's something else just to tell people is that you need to be actively engaged in your, you know, illness doesn't just happen overnight. You don't just wake up one day with cancer and wake up one day with heart disease. It takes, you know, 30 years to get cardiovascular disease. Um, even like a breast cancer, by the time it's diagnosed, it's been around for a couple of years. Like these things happen over time. And so just that's something else as well. Just people tend to think of health as something that they just automatically have. That's a right. It's not something you have to work and strive for. And it's something you really do need to work and strive for if you want to gain it and maintain it for for your entire life. I love that you mentioned that because it takes me back to what you were saying in the beginning. When you take these functional medicine approaches, even what you were doing with your daughter, this is not an overnight pill. This is not a quick fix. This is like a whole behavioral and lifestyle change. And that takes time. And that's hard for many people. Yeah. I'm glad that you brought that out again. It sounds like a lot of the challenges that you probably deal with are chronic disease related because that's where we are, right? Most things are chronic disease related. So how do you try to unwind, parse chronic illness? How do you begin to unwind an illness when it's chronic? I mean, a lot of times when I see a person, it's, it's hard. You don't necessarily walk in the room and they say, I've got chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia and chronic headaches and migraines and gut issues and poor sleep hygiene. And you don't automatically know what's kind of putting all this together. <clears throat> Sorry. So what we do is just kind of go back to the past. You know, what's your family history? What, what genes or environment did they, are there any links with mom and grandma and brothers and sisters and health that I might be able to pull out? Go into your birth history. Where did you grow up? It's amazing. Different places you grew up in different parts of the country have to do with different diseases. You know, I, I learned that if you're Long Island, there's actually a lot of different cancers for people who grew up on Long Island due to based all the spring with all the um, farms, et cetera, on that little strip. I was the Long Island. I'm from Virginia. I thought it was just this place where people with money lived. I didn't realize it was, used to be actually a big agricultural you know, area. So just kind of learning about people's, their history, you know, what kind of events happened in childhood, chronic infections, dental issues, you know, it's interesting how antibiotic exposure in childhood is associated with obesity and increased risk for diabetes. You know, how many antibiotics you're exposed to as a kid? Did you get a lot of cavities? You know, how many cavities and fillings you've had will reflect your nutritional status during these formative years? You know, did you play sports? Did you get a lot of concussions? You know, people don't realize playing soccer, you get these little micro concussions every time you get hit in your head with a soccer ball. And those things can set you up for brain inflammation and gut inflammation gut issues, bacterial overgrowth, slow bowel absorption kind of stuff from just small micro concussions, you know, go through your, any traumatic events in childhood, anything that there's a whole lot of field of medicine looking at adverse childhood events and how these traumatic childhood events can actually set you up for autoimmune diseases and different cancers in adulthood. So it's kind of go through the person's history and then go through like What's someone's symptoms started? When's the first time they had fatigue or a headache or whatever? And just see how things go on. You'll see, you'll, you'll see triggering events. You'll see a few symptoms in this big blip. And you're like, well, uncover that. Like what was going on when you were, you know, when you were 
18 or 22, you know, and you'll be interesting to find out lots when my, my mom died. And that's also my, you know, this other traumatic thing happened. And that's when, oh, that's when things start to go, you know, you, you that's, that was the last time I remember being feeling well. Right. And so it's, you learn the person's history, you learn their health and whatever's going on with them today. These are not isolated events, but it's just in the context of their own personal life story. And so some people will call this lifestyle medicine because you're digging into their, their life literally. And then as you learn this person's history as the practitioner and the, the quote unquote expert, you know, I can then use my, my knowledge base to say, oh, this is how these things interconnect. You know, you've had chronic headaches, but did you know there's a connection between your immune system and your gut with brain function? You know, it's called the gut, gut immune brain access. And so we kind of start learning how the different systems work together and try to use that information to help figure out what's going on with the person's, the person's health. And it's amazing how many times after, after a while you start hearing similar stories over and over and over again. So that's, that's what I do. I kind of take the pieces and kind of put them together for a person to give them an individualized story of their, of their health. Very cool. With something like this, I know we're all learning more about COVID as COVID unfolds, but some of the symptoms of long COVID sound a little bit chronic. Would this yes. be something that you'd cover too? And how do you see that unfolding? So it's interesting when, when long COVID, the idea of a post-infectious inflammation is an old idea. We've heard about, you know, your chronic mono, right? You get mono, you're, you get chronic fatigue or CMV or, or Lyme. You get post-Lyme or long, long Lyme. You get tick bite and you're sick for years and years. So what we're learning is, is different infections whether they're stomach infections, gut infections, respiratory tract infections, can in certain individuals spark an inflammatory cascade. So that's what long COVID is or post-acute sequela of COVID-19. It's when you get this, this novel virus, which is the SARS-CoV-2, but in certain individual, it triggers this inflammatory process so that when the virus is gone, they're still inflamed. They still have these markers for inflammation. They still have brain fog. They still have fatigue. They still have problems getting quality sleep, et cetera. And so this kind of entity already exists, but learning with some of the newer, what we're learning about COVID and some of the things for it, then adding that on top of that, what we already know about other things, you know, if you live, for example, in a moldy environment, you have an increased lung inflammation. If you already had gut issues before, which is where 90% of your immune system sits, you're more prone to post-infectious inflammation. If you're hypermobile, double-jointed, it's amazing. One in 30 Americans is double jointed and they just don't know. And that makes you a great athlete. It makes you good at certain sports, but it also makes you more prone to tissue inflammation. Now, undiagnosed sleep apnea is something else I'm seeing lots of um, young, healthy people that are slender, who aren't overweight, but they have upper airway resistance syndrome based on actually it's nutrition. They get smaller airway passages and mild sleep apnea. To date, about half of my patients with long COVID have actually had mild forms of sleep apnea. And so what, one of the things I'm doing is taking these people with quote unquote long COVID. I'm not looking for a magic bullet to fix long COVID, but I'm using the research with vitamin D status and using things like lotus naltrexone and different anti-inflammatory, anti-parasitic medications and nutritional interventions. And using that with some of our old tools you already have with chronic fatigue and fibro. You know, we've, we learned in the last several years that, for example, chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia are actually brain inflammatory diseases. There's these immune cells in your brain called microglia that get activated. And that's actually what these entities are. We're seeing the same cells now being activated with um, long COVID. So now it's like, well, sure, let's use some of these older things you already had and start using them for this new thing. And um, I've had some pretty good results so far with my, with long COVID patients using this approach. It's like, a, it's an old school, new school, school, you know, mixed approach using old information with new information 
combining it for the with the patient in front of me. How are these new methods proving to save lives? Proving to save lives. Maybe, maybe I would say they're improving lives because I'm improving their health status. You know, you know, it's really interesting to see there's a lot of different therapies out there around the world, you know, that work really well that we just, you know, we just don't latch on to. The vitamin D is still like it, it still amazes me that this is not being preached from the rooftop. And we know that 87% of people who die with COVID have low vitamin D level. We know that low vitamin D affects your body's ability to make antibodies. So low D can slow your progression to making antibodies to clear infections out of your system. Low D actually sets you up for inflammation. There's all this great data using and different, um, using D actually in hospitals in Spain to treat acute COVID. And this is just vitamin D. And so just imagine something as simple and basic supplement you can buy anywhere in the country is still controversial, even though we have at this stage, tons of data about it. Just take that and magnify it by all these other things. And that's where I think there's so much misinformation and mis and poor communication, you know, if, if I talk about anything besides what's, you know, the storyline as far as therapies, if you're shot down, it's like, why can't you let the experts be the experts and research mm-hmm. and find things out and do what they're doing in Europe and in Spain and different parts around the world? Why do we have to wait for our government to say, well, you're allowed to do this now? You know, right. I, just remind, I just remind people, it took us 50 years to figure out for the Surgeon General of the United States to figure out the smoking was bad for us. So do we really mm-hmm. want to wait that 50 years or, you know, it's really interesting. I read this, I was reading this interesting book during the pandemic called 1493. And it's about like the, um, the history of basically um, post-Columbian exchange history. And it was interesting in China in the 1600s, they were like, we don't want cigarettes here. We don't want your Western bad smoking and get it out of here. And that was, that was like almost 500 years ago, right? They knew it was bad for them back then. Why did it take us such a long time to figure out that inhaling smoke is, a, is bad for you, right? And so that's where I feel like we're kind of now we're stuck with you know, medicine's very, it's very, it's very structured. We get kind of, it's almost like a train going on track. And once you get a certain direction, it's hard to change directions. And mm-hmm. I feel like we need to allow, you know, practitioners to practice. We need to allow, allow physicians, scientists to, to do their jobs. And, um, and that's what people want. When someone see a doctor, they want the doctor to think that someone you're, you're, you're allowed to think independently and clearly. I trust your opinion. What, what's your research? What does that say about this? Not be like, well, what do you, well, how do you interpret what this big government organization says? Because Ultimately, people don't want that kind of care. They want individualized, personalized health care. You know? And so that's where I think we're at. we have two worlds kind of colliding right now with everything that's going on. Yes, definitely. <laughs> and, and the man in the street in the middle, like, what do I do? Who do I follow? What's going it's, on? <laughs> it's so hard. So I also have done a lot of clinical research. My research company has been doing a lot of those studies with Pfizer. Um, we've had over 800 patients in the trials at my research site. And I remember the first interview I did with one of the local news stations. And when they got broadcast, they were cl- they were saying, hey, Dr. Harmon, he, he basically discovered the COVID vaccine. I'm like, I'm just a clinical researcher. Like I didn't, but it was interesting. <laughs> I talked with them for half an hour and somehow within half what they am saying wasn't even right. And it's like, oh my gosh. And that was when I just realized, wow, like this happens all the time. Mm-hmm. This is a common occurrence where, you know, good mean people will do some research, but not hundred percent communicate what they've learned or been told or, or asked questions. And it's just, that's happening all the time. And it only creates more chaos and confusion. And people don't know what, to, you know, do masks work? Do they not work? Does a vaccine work? Does it not work? And it's like, and we're still, we're still debating that right now. I'm like, we should be past this, you know? Yes. Well, let, let's touch on that briefly. Your research center was involved in some vaccine trials in your area. How do you make your patients, I guess, feel comfortable with trusting the vaccine? For those who are hesitant, what do you tell them to try to put them at ease? 
I mean, the, with the vaccine and stuff, you look at the data. I tend to look more at a lot of the UK data from over in Europe. They just done a much better job collecting data, watching it closely. They're they're much more open with information. It's everything's been a lot less politicized over there. So it's been mm-hmm. which it's been a great resource. So it's interesting if you look at you know the side effects from the vaccine. You know, look at the clots, strokes. You know, all these things people talk about. And you look at the incidence of those in people who actually get COVID. So the risk of strokes, yeah, there's a small, small risk of like one in 80 to 100,000 of getting a stroke from the vaccine. But the risk of getting it from COVID is 10 times greater than the vaccine. The same thing with the, the pulmonary the clots, the pulmonary emboli, the, the deep, the uh, clots in your brain, little strokes, if you're familiar with that. that. That can happen with either the vaccine or the infection, but it's the, the, the rate at which it occurs is much greater if you get COVID itself. Than if you if you mm-hmm. do the vaccine, so that's where I think, you know, that there's there's this whole thing like any risk at all is an acceptable risk. And I'm like, that's not life. You every time you mm-hmm. walk out of your house, you're taking risks. And so, you know, we're at this stage, and this is data from two weeks ago. Basically, as of now, and this today it's like September eighth right now that we're recording. Um, this is it's going to be endemic. This is everywhere. We're not escaping this. Either you're going to get it, or you're going to get immunity from either getting sick and getting better, or getting the vaccine. And it's, there's no way around that. And so at this stage, it's, it's basically, do you feel like health status wise, where are you at? You know, if you're, you know, a, a five-year-old kid, you know, this is not that big of a deal. If you're over 50, you know, it, it can be really, really bad for you. I, I had COVID and I basically, I missed a week of work. I had a fever for a week straight. I was pretty bad off, you know, it took a while to get back to normal. And so it's like, you know, you know, for me, I would have avoided all that with the vaccine, you know, and if you're over 65, this thing's still killing me. The people that are dying right now still are mainly unvaccinated older people. And so I feel like this the, the vaccine has its utility, but it's, it shouldn't just be the vaccine, the vaccine alone, right? You know, vitamin D status, particularly people with skin of color, nutritional status, you know, zinc status. And then if you get sick, there are a whole lot of nutritionals and different things you can use to help lower severity of COVID-19. You know, the, um, Eastern Virginia, the most researched pulmonary critical care expert in the United States, Dr. Paul Merrick at EVMS, started putting protocols together to treat this with a group of intensive care specialists around the world over a year ago. And they've been doing keeping an up-to-date resource for this. Like, why, why can't we use that stuff if you get sick or to help prevent? You know, we should use all the tools in our toolkit. We should not limit ourselves just to one tool. And that's where I think the messaging has been bad. It's like, you can only do this, you can only vaccinate, or you can only unmask or only mask or only use vitamin D. It's like, why can't, why can't we use all the tools available to us? And that, that's where I think in the functional medicine, well, that's what we're doing. We're saying, you know, if you're a high risk person, you probably should get vaccinated. But the reality is we're all going to get this. So don't you want to maximize your health so that when you do get this, you kind of sail through it. You don't get sick and miss a week or two of work or get hospitalized, you know, or get or have long term long COVID. You know, supposedly 10, anywhere from 10 to 30 percent of people who get COVID will develop long COVID. That's a lot of people. A lot of people. So if you get COVID, but you're not sick enough to go to the hospital, there's actually stuff you can take at home to help you feel better faster. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's I no that, idea. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, no. That, that's stuff like, you know, well, it's, if you, if you, um, the probably the best single resource on that, it's called iMask Protocol and Dr. Paul Merrick. If you Google EVMS, which is Eastern Virginia Medical School, because they have a whole document. And these are all critical care specialists that have put this stuff together. And like the people that know the most about this kind of medicine are ICU, pulmonary, critical care specialists. Those, that's their jam. And so, you know, vitamin D, the, the big things are vitamin D status, which, you know, for most Americans is low. 
Vitamin C helps lower the risk of severe sepsis-like reactions, respiratory tract infections. Zinc status is important. If your zinc level is low, it increases your risk of hospitalization 40%. There's a, there's a nutrient called N-acetylcysteine or NAC, NAC. That actually taking that lowers your risk of um, symptoms about 60%. And it's been used for flu during flu season for like years and years. It's used by, um, for lung disease. Have you ever heard of mucomist that's used for people with cerebral palsy, um, cystic fibrosis? This is, this is an old school medication nutrient that's been around for a long time. You know, you know quercetin or quercetin, you know, when, when all the hydroxychloroquine stuff was going around, one of the things people didn't talk about was quercetin is nature's ionophore. It helps zinc get into your cells. And it's basically an onion apple extract. And it's a simple supplement you can get. So melatonin, if you actually get COVID, you know, it's one of the things you're doing in the hospital at EVMS. If you get COVID, they're giving you melatonin to lower the inflammation during the nighttime and improve your quality of sleep to help with set up the inflammation for the following day. So there's a whole host of things you can actually do. And then there's, you know, the whole idea of COVID being a mast cell activation syndrome, which mast cells are part of your immune system and using things like Pepsid. You know, if you get admitted to the hospital, they give you Pepsid. Why they do that? Because it lowers these inflammatory cells from releasing all their inflammatory mediators. So there's a whole host of things that can be done. That's part of the thing kind of is driving me a little bonkers. Like we have great data with this stuff now. This is, we're, way into this, we know there are definitely things in addition to, you know, therapeutics like Regeneron, which is the monoclonal antibody, in addition to preventives like the vaccine that have all the great data, why can't we use those tools as well? Why can't you? Because uh, the establishment says there's not enough data and, and evidence. Oh. And so, and we're, because we're the people who say anything outside of what um, the big organizations recommend are considered, you know, bad sources. I just kind of defer to experts, you know, when you got the most researched critical care guy in the country leading this thing up. I tend to listen, you know, mm -hmm. I don't just blow them off and say, well, since I've never heard of that, it can't be true. That's a little hubris, I think. And unfortunately that happens a lot in medicine where if I haven't heard of it, it can't be true. I'm like, I learned a long time ago. There's a whole lot of things I haven't heard of. So mm -hmm. I need to be open. And if it sounds a little weird, I research it myself. And, you know, a lot of times people, people are smart. People can figure stuff out. I just, I'm humble enough to learn wherever learning can occur, not just in certain organizations and certain systems and certain funnels where I get, I get fed information, which is how typically how the education post-graduate works. Works. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Hartman. Do you have any closing thoughts? I, mean, I think just, you know, today's day and culture where information is easily accessible, it's also cheapened to a certain amount. And that's where just finding reliable source of information, getting your own team together. You know, it's we we all we, we all want to be our own lone wolf kind of sort of speak, but you also have to just find people around you. You know, you get you get an accountant, you get some of your taxes, you get the people who are edu that especially is education help educate your kids, or you go to university for that kind of stuff. Just in the health, we need our team as well. You know, and so that's where I feel like getting that around yourself and getting educated. You know, one of the things that I went when my wife and I started dating, I was telling her back here in the night late. But 2000, 2001, you know, this, it's time for a pandemic. You know, we, every 20 to 30 years, we have one of these things. And so we're going through it now, but the reality is this is going to happen again. So how can we use this as a stepping stone to prepare us for the next, the next one? Because it's not, this is not like a one and done kind of thing. And if you, if you study your history, this happens every so often. So I would, say, I would just encourage people to get educated and start prepping themselves now and get resilient and work on their, their health. You know, if you don't have your health and you don't have, it's kind of hard to enjoy your life, to enjoy your career, enjoy your family, if you don't have the energy to get out of bed and do what you want to do. So just, I would just say, I was have people try to work on, work on that now, this, this year, next year and going forward. Who do you need on your team? Um, your health team? You need a good, you need a good primary care doctor, in my opinion, someone who has, who's, who's, who's well-educated in a, in a breadth of information. 
Um, you probably need um, someone who's like a nutritional expert to help guide you with food, food prep stuff. You know, most back in the day, most, most, most people could cook, you know, and today's that's, we almost have to relearn that dying art. Like, how do you actually figure out what tastes good, what goes together? Um, and then, you know, family and relationships are important. Having your people around you, being connected with others around you. It's, that's important for health as well. It's interesting data looking at different cultures. There's this Polynesian people group who 80% of all the males smoke, but they live together in close community. They eat natural food from the environment and they have no heart disease and no cancer. Oh. And just, yeah, just energy, the French paradigm, right? You, they drink and they smoke and they have no heart disease and cancer, right? It's like, what's, what's the magic sauce? The magic sauce is just this close, meaningful relationships. You know, that's an important part of health as well. That is often overlooked in the United States. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming to the Good Health Cafe today, Dr. Hartman. It was a pleasure to have you. Yeah, thanks a lot for inviting me. Hopefully this was helpful to your audience. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you heard something useful on today's episode, please share it with a friend. In the episode notes, you can find all of Dr. Hartman's information plus a link to a free gift from him. Until next time, see you in the cafe later. Bye.